I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Twenty years ago, the presidential election was decided by a 5-4 vote of the Supreme Court. This week, our guest is Los Angeles Times Supreme Court reporter David Savage, who's been covering the court since 1986. He talks about Bush v. Gore, why it happened, and its implications for election 2020. David Savage, it's the 20th anniversary of Bush v. Gore, and here we are in the midst of sorting through another close election. We asked you, because you've been covering this Supreme Court since 1986 for the Los Angeles Times, to come back and look back in time with us at that 2000 election. What, what we were going through then as comparison to what we're happening, what is happening now, and also some of the lessons that were learned. So let's start with the court itself in 2000, the Rehnquist Court nine members, and seven of them had been appointed by Republican presidents. But how did they align ideologically? Well, it was pretty much of a sort of a 5-4 conservative court. Rehnquist was the real leader of that court. Justice Scalia was a prominent figure. It sort of leaned right. Uh, There were several moderate Republicans. We don't see a lot of that. John Stevens, David Souter, and uh, Ruth Ginsburg, and Stephen Breyer were the sort of four on the left. So it sort of leaned uh, conservative, uh, but um, it was also an interesting era. You know, the court was the court's never one hundred percent predictable, and I always found even then that you know Justice Kennedy and Justice um, O'Connor were sort of um, middle of the road conservatives, and and you could not uh, predict them in all sorts of cases. Would you say a bit more about the Chief Justice William Rehnquist and and his approach to leading the court? Well, he had, you know, he had been on the court for a lot of years before he became the chief justice. He was a person of very strong and very clear views. I, I got to know Rehnquist a, a bit. I go to lunch with him every year, and I always found him the most interesting person. He could talk about all sorts of subjects. If you, he was sort of an ideal lunch guest because if he wanted to talk about sports or politics or the weather or whatever, and he was a person who um, liked to get out of the court and talk to people. I always found him. And he also was a very good leader. The justices really appreciated that Rehnquist was very straightforward and clear. He respected their views. He knew people had different views, but he was a very good leader uh, for the court. And um, he also had a sort of, uh, he he really was a sort of ideological leader. He had strong views about um, the separate states having authority and all that, that the federal courts wouldn't be overbearing. And over a lot of years, he sort of moved the court in his direction. So he was a states' rights oriented in his philosophy. Uh, Among the Republican appointees, uh, in addition to Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas, were there any other uh, of the uh, ideology we're so familiar with now, textualists and originalists? No. Uh, Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy were, as I say, sort of moderate conservatives, but originalism was pretty much the province of uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas. Um, I, I, I remember Justice O'Connor and Kennedy basically thought, you know, that we've had 200 years of precedent on a lot of questions, things like equal protection of the law or due process of law are were not defined in 1787, and they didn't have a lot of uh, regard for trying to figure out what the understanding was of all those questions. So, so, no, it was not a court that was dominated by notions of originalism then the way it has, is now. These these questions become important in understanding the decisions the court ended up making. So we'll come back to them as the events play out. So just as this week, the morning after the election in 2000, neither candidate Al Gore nor George W. Bush had achieved 270 electoral college votes. Uh, for people who have forgotten the history, President Bush, uh, then Governor Bush, won 29 states, 246 electoral votes. Uh, F- Vice President Al Gore, 18 states plus D.C. with 260. And the focus then turned to Florida, which at the time had 25, now 29 electoral college votes. So the teams, uh, can we assume that they had established legal strategies long before Election Day? No. <laughs> no, I actually, I think um, both sides were sort of left 
scrambling because um, you can never, you know, Susan, when I th- think back about it, then it was obvious, I suppose, even then, that the single biggest fact was that George Bush was ahead by a couple hundred votes on election night and the next day after all the ballots had gone through the counting machines. So from the very beginning, James Baker, leading the team for Bush, said, Governor Bush has won the vote. It's all over with. He won. Uh, Al Gore's team was then left with saying, okay, what do we do? We're only like something like 500 votes behind. Um, There were nearly 6 million ballots cast. We need to go back and see if there were votes that were less. The margin is so close. So I don't think they had any great um, legal strategy uh, prior to Election Day. But after Election Day, both sides had a clear strategy. The Republican strategy was it's all over. It's time to stop counting. Governor Bush has won. Uh, Gore's strategy was we need to go back, take another look at these all the votes, do some recounts. This is very close. We should keep counting. We should not quit. And along the way where there's comparisons to today, uh, they'd be helpful. Today, as we understand from reading, both both campaigns have had legal strategies in place for quite a while. Is that your understanding as well? Yes. I mean, the, the, they they knew there's a possibility of litigation. Everybody's sort of on notice now, particularly since Bush versus course. But yes, both sides are um, on notice of, uh, of and preparing themselves, preparing themselves on state laws, for example, because a lot of this turns on the technicalities of state law. And if you're a Washington lawyer or whatever, you don't know that. So you need to get people in all the states, get them very much up to speed. But then your strategy, again, becomes sort of like, where's your candidate? Is he ahead or behind? And that determines a lot of the legal strategy from then on out. Two other notes about the 2000 legal teams. First of all, uh, as you mentioned, the uh, the Bush team was led by former Secretary of State James Baker, and Al Gore selected former Secretary of State Warren Christopher to be the head of his legal team. How important was it to, I think, pub- public confidence in the process to have two people of this stature at the head of the legal teams? Well, both of them, as you say, were sort of impressive people, sort of uh, wise men of their time and their party. Uh, very t- different approach, very different strategy. Uh, James, Baker, James Baker was very much standing before the cameras, being very public and saying, as I said, Governor Bush has won. It's time for this to, to end. Warren Christopher was much more of a reserved sort of lawyer's lawyer, but not one to spend a lot of time before the cameras and was a very much more reserved figure. And, and to some degree, it, it affected the, the strategy that uh, Bush's team seemed much more aggressive and sort of running a sort of a public campaign to say, hey, our our candidate won. It's time for this to end. That was their consistent message for six weeks. And I think it had some effect. There were hundreds of lawyers involved in both sides' legal teams, but three names of note of, of interest pop out, and that is Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Uh, young-ish lawyers at that particular time. Are they, uh, other than a footnote to the story, an important thing to note at this point? Well, they are a footnote for the reason (laughs) that you know and I know. Uh, But I don't really think they had very big roles at that time. They were, it it was the kind of case where both sides had sort of uh, the army of young lawyers uh, on the Republican side or the Democratic side. They basically said, rush to Florida and uh, get involved. I was, you know, in the news business, we all know that a lot of reporters and journalists said, rush a lot of people to Florida. And so there were a lot of young lawyers who went to Florida, got very, and immediately went to help out. But I don't think John Roberts or uh, certainly um, Amy uh, Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh had enormous roles. They were people there to help out and chip in, but they were not is sort of the key figures leading the um, legal fight. So the days between November 8th, the day after the election, and the first appeal to the Supreme Court were just full of uh, legal arguments at both the local and state level. Uh, and uh, the, f- the first involvement of the Supreme Court happened on November 22nd, a couple weeks later. Uh, what, if you had to summarize anything of note between all of the legal wrangling that happened during those first couple weeks before it got to the court, is there anything that stands out? 
Well, I'll tell you what I remember, which was that I started reading a lot of Florida Supreme Court opinions at the time, and I uh, and I, I realized right away that the Florida courts were very much of the view of the sort of count all the votes. They had had a lot of election problems in Florida and in Miami and various races, and they had a sort of philosophy and a, an approach to the election law to say it's important to get the result right to count all the ballots. There had been disputed elections in Miami. I even think they even ordered some new elections. So they were very, as a court, very open to the argument of saying, hey, we need to, this is a very close election. We need to make sure all the votes were counted, all the votes were counted fairly, that there was no fraud. Or, and so they were, as a court, very open to the argument that Gore's team was making, which was, this is a razor-thin margin, and we should not rush to end this. We should go back, at least be willing to look at um, recounting votes. The main legal dispute early on was uh, there was a provision in the Florida law that said if there's an error in the tab vote tabulation uh, that could have determined the outcome, uh, that, that's could be grounds for doing recounts or reopening the election. Now, that for, what does the phrase error in the vote tabulation means? Well, from the Republicans' point of view, and I remember Chief Justice Rehnquist had this very strong view, that that was about, is suppose the um, computers had been programmed in some wrong way, and in your county, a couple precincts were left out. And they turn in the votes and they say, hey, wait a minute, we made an error in the vote tabulation. Uh, the votes from so-and-so didn't get counted. So we're going to correct that error, go back and recertify and change our numbers. Or there was a power outage on election day and there was some error that, you know, made some big difference. And so you'd fix it. But Al Gore's team took the view that the punch card ballots failed to count a certain number of votes just because they weren't punched clearly through. And it was, it was sometimes a half of a percent, even 1%. They wouldn't be counted. They said, see, look, that's an error in the vote tabulation that could determine the outcome here. And so we should go back and uh, re re-examine hand by hand those ballots. And so for the first week or two, the re the really big issue that sort of moved its way through the Florida courts and then up to the Supreme Court was, what does the phrase error in vote tabulation means? And does it authorize the counting or recounting all these paper ballots or not? The Republican view was no, there's no grounds for continuing this recount. The Gore team, the Democratic view was, yes, it's really close. We should continue the um, recounting these these uh, paper ballots. And as you're describing the, the, that, uh, I'm sure people are remembering the images of hanging chads and dimpled yes. chads and magnifying glasses trying to discern the intent of the voters as those weeks moved on. On November 24th of 2000, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, announced that it would hear arguments. So was this decision that they, that first time that they would and get involved a surprise to court watchers? It was a surprise to many people, many lawyers around the country. Uh, it wasn't a surprise to me uh, and a few of my friends at the court. Um, I remember those weeks in early November uh, talking with some of the people around the court building and who were talking to the justices upstairs and basically said they're watching this very closely and if this recount continues, they are going to be very willing to jump in. And I remember lawyers around the country saying, oh, there's no way the U.S. Supreme Court would get involved in that. And I thought that's not correct, that there are five of them that sort of took the Republican view that um, Governor Bush had won the, the count and there was no need for this weeks of going through these paper ballots. And... Uh, when it was uh, Ted Olson appealed it to the Supreme Court, uh, they moved very quickly to take up the case, and they were going to reconsider basically that question that I said, which was, 
the, the error in the vote tabulation, did that really justify the Florida Supreme Court ordering all these recounts? Rehnquist and Scalia were very skeptical of that. And, um, and so it, a lot of people were surprised. They jumped in. Um, but there's a, one technicality, Susan, that this was still in the phase of something like the certification phase where they were uh, tabulating the votes within Florida. Everybody thought that was going to be that Supreme Court case was going to decide everything. And as you know, it really didn't. It was just sort of a preliminary first stage ruling that didn't actually finally resolve the matter. The case was named Bush versus Palm Beach County Canvassing Authority. December 1st of 2000, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments for 90 minutes. Uh, what do you remember about the atmospherics of that day, both inside and outside the court? Well, there was an, an enormous uh, focus on, um, you know, about once a decade or whatever, there's some case that seems like for, like the healthcare case was a couple of years ago, it seems like the whole country is paying attention for at least one hour uh, because it sure looked like the court was going to uh, either, you know, weigh in and shut down uh, this voting, in which case uh, uh, Governor Bush would win. That everybody thought there's a good chance, this is the Supreme Court, that they are going to decide the election in this case. So there was an enormous amount of focus. It was, um, you know, it was not a very interesting or uh, uh, it was not a great compelling legal story because you're sort of falling all over the, but what does the phrase Aaron vote tabulation means? And who's to decide that? Is the state court to decide that? Or can the federal judges step in and say, wait a minute, that's not what state election law is. And you alluded to this earlier, even though Rehnquist and Scalia were sort of states' rights people, they were suggesting that the federal judges, the U.S. Supreme Court, should step in and overrule the state Florida judges on the meaning of Florida law. And that seemed to, to a lot of people like, where did that come from? Uh, that seemed a little bit uh, aggressive, but that's that's where they were. So the lawyer uh, arguing for uh, Governor Bush, you mentioned him, Theodore Ted Olson. Tell our viewers about Ted Olson's background and experience that he brought to arguing this case. Well, he's a great guy, a great lawyer. He had been, uh, he'd come to Washington with the Reagan administration from Southern California in the early 1980s and worked in the, in the Reagan Justice Department for a few years. He's a, Ted is a very, um, you know, I don't know anybody who doesn't like Ted Olson. He's a very outgoing, very likable person, a, a person who knew, knew all the justices. He's a very good advocate. He's got, his, he's got a sort of clear view and sort of presses ahead. And um, he, he was also the guy who, you know, played the main role of getting these cases before the Supreme Court. I think his instinct early on was quite correct, which was to say, hey, we may not do too well in the Florida Supreme Court. They had this view that I'd mentioned earlier of let's count all the votes and keep counting. He thought uh, we may need to go to the U.S. Supreme Court if this uh, keeps on. If, and so he was the guy who kept pressing these issues into the uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court. So he was the right lawyer for the for the right case. Al Gore's legal representation before the court was done by Lawrence Tribe. Who is he? Famous Harvard Law professor, uh, one of the sort of best known and uh, uh, highly regarded sort of liberal law professors of his era. Had written great constitutional law textbooks. Uh, I remember him early on as an advocate in the Supreme Court and. Uh, uh, he had some very good arguments and some not so good arguments. The good thing about Larry Tribe was he was really so smart and, and so um, learned on uh, constitutional law that there were a certain amount of cases where the justices would just sit back and listen to him, which they don't do too often. Uh, on the other hand, he was a fairly uh, liberal law professor, and uh, he was not necessarily going to uh, have a lot of sway with the conservative justices. Uh, and so... Um, he, he was in many cases he'd run into a real clash with uh, Rehnquist and Scalia and the, and the conservative members of the court. Now, the court, as I hope most C-SPAN listeners and viewers know, does not allow video of its proceedings. But even at the time, they were audio taping 
their oral arguments. And we have a clip of both Ted Olson and Lawrence Tribe. It's about a minute long, making their arguments before the 2000 Rehnquist Court on Bush versus Palm County, canvas, Palm Beach County canvassing authority. Let's listen and we'll have you come back and talk about the arguments they made. Two weeks after the November 7 presidential election, the Florida Supreme Court overturned and materially rewrote portions of the carefully formulated set of laws enacted by Florida's legislature to govern the conduct of that election and the determination of controversies with respect to who prevailed on November 7. Although it is part of the popular culture to talk about how unfair it is to change the rules of the game, I think that misses the point when the game is over and when it's over in a kind of photo finish that leaves people unsure who won. And then the question is, how do you develop great sort of greater certainty? Uh, and a rather common technique is a recount, sometimes a manual recount, sometimes taking more time. So that's uh, a, a bit of the 90 minute argument before the court. What was the central part of the argument on both sides? Well, you see, Ted Olson was basically making the argument that the Florida Supreme Court has botched Florida law, that, that rather than sticking with the law as it was on Election Day, they've changed it. Now, of course, their view was we're, we were interpreting Florida law. We don't, we're not throwing it out. But Ted Olson was making the argument that the Florida law basically called for certifying the results within a week or so, uh, as I say, unless there's some sort of a computer glitch that that uh, messed up the count. You basically certified the results, and he thought they should certify the results and say Governor Bush won. But instead, the Florida Supreme Court allowed instead this counting to be. So as I say, he was making the argument that the Florida Supreme Court got Florida law wrong, and you, the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, should step in and change it. And Larry Tribe, of course, has to make the argument: is look, it's a very close election. Um, and, and and the Florida judges correctly want to make sure that all the votes, all the legal votes were counted and that um, we should count, make sure we count all the votes before we decide who won, who won the election. Three days later, the court returned a per curiam opinion. What does that mean? It basically just means it's an opinion of the court that wasn't signed. And I think uh, uh, what you, you made know some of the, this detail more than me, Susan, but I think what happened was in a day or so after that, the result was certified in Florida and Governor Bush won. And so in a sense, the Supreme Court didn't need to resolve the issue that they thought they were going to have to resolve. And so they basically wrote uh, an opinion for the court that, that said uh, uh, Rehnquist's view of this, which was the Constitution from the beginning said that the electors shall be created, shall be chosen based in, by the manner set by the legislatures of the states. This was the view in you know, 1787 that they were going to allow the legislatures to pick the electors. Rehnquist's view was that the Florida legislature had set the law and that the Florida Supreme Court had, they had really had no basis for changing that law. It, normally, state courts determine their own state law, but Rehnquist kept saying federal elections are different. And so he sort of laid that out in a few paragraphs, a few pages, and said, but it's we're a little bit unclear what the basis of the floor. So they, they found a way to write an opinion, make the case go away, because at that time, over just a couple of days, they realized they didn't need to resolve it because the certification had ended and Governor Bush at that point had won. Except it didn't end it. And events right. move very quickly over the, the next couple of days, so much so that I asked our producer, uh, Nick Raval, to put it on a timeline so we could go through it pretty quickly. December 6th of 20, uh, 2000, the GOP-led Florida legislature announced that it would convene for the purpose of choosing new electors, a process that is allowed under the Constitution. On December 7th, the Gore legal team makes arguments in the Florida Supreme Court. 
A lot happened on December 8th of that year. The Florida Supreme Court ordered manual recounts in a four to three decision. At the same time, the Bush team seeks a recount injunction from the Supreme Court. And then the Florida legislature starts its meeting process to choose new electors. One day later, December 9th, the Supreme Court stepped in to halt the manual recounts and set a date for a hearing. Two days later, December 11th, the arguments were heard in Bush v. Gore. And then one day later, the Supreme Court announced its uh, decision, which ended the election in a 5-4 decision. We're going to uh, talk about some of the important parts of that step for our storyline today. But why, first of all, why was speed of such essence? Why did events have to move so quickly? Well, two two things. Uh, After the case back in Florida, there is a provision of Florida law that says after the result's been certified, the losing candidate can contest the result. And so that's why Gore was back before the Florida Supreme Court saying, we're contesting the result. There are these, there are thousands of these punch card ballots. Some of them uh, that didn't register vote, they should be counted. So that was, so he was contesting that. The time issue was there is a provision in the uh, federal law that, that says there's sort of a period where if the state gets its electors settled and decided by, and I believe it was December 12th that year, then they're not subject to any further challenge when they go to Congress. So there's a lot of debate about this, but basically the view was December 12th was the day the state needed to resolve this. So there was, as you say, sort of a real-time pressure. The Florida Supreme Court on that Friday handed down this four to three decision. I think they said there are something like 40,000 of these ballots around the state. That is punch card ballots that went through the machine, didn't register a vote. Uh, they should all be counted. And I think their view was they could be counted Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, and the count would be completed by uh, the, the date early next week. I think it was always the case on the Bush team side was – they were very worried that if the count proceeded, that Gore could go ahead and then that would change everything. If Gore were suddenly ahead in the vote, you know, then then they're in a bad shape because then they'd have to be saying, wait a minute, keep counting. So they did not want that count to continue. And that was part of their driving force. When the Florida Supreme Court decided that on a Friday, Ted Olson was ready on Friday night to appeal, file an emergency with appeal with the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, and say, stop the issue an order, stop the count. When an injunction like that is issued, is it a, a simple majority opinion? Yes, it takes five votes to issue an order. Uh, that Within a court, they have four votes sometimes to grant review of a case. But if you're actually going to do something, an, an injunction like that is an order to the other courts to stop doing what you're doing and enjoining the action. It takes five. Do you recall the vote on the injunction? Was that a 5-4 vote? Sure was. And uh, it was, in my view, the it was the decision. It decided the matter. The split was clear, and once they decided it, it was over with. I, I covered, like the rest of the world, what went on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. But in my view, it was over uh, about noon on when they handed down the injunction. Uh, it was Rehnquist, Scalia, Thomas, and uh, Kennedy and O'Connor. Um, we know that because the four, uh, John Stevens, uh, Justice Ginsburg, Souter and Breyer issued a dissent, and they knew, they, they were astonished that uh, on that Friday night that Ted Olson, had, that there was actually a possibility that the court would intervene to stop the count. I remember years later, they talked about being in plays or something on a, a holiday parties and being astonished to know that the court was going to meet and that they could possibly, the five on the right would jump quickly to shut down the counting in in uh, Florida but that's what happened on f- on Saturday afternoon they 
all across Florida, there were these county teams going through these uh, uh, punch card ballots. The Supreme Court on a five to four vote said, stop the counting uh, and uh, we will uh, agree to hear this case on a fast track note. But it, as you said earlier, Susan, everybody understood there was a time limit. It had to be done by December 12th. This was Saturday afternoon. Uh, Tuesday, the time was going to run out. When the Supreme Court stepped in, stopped the vote, uh, you only you would only issue an injunction like that if you were the justice, you've got your mind made up. And five of them had their mind made up. They were not going to allow that recount to continue. So for you, just to underscore, that 5-4 injunction vote presaged for you what was going to ultimately happen with the, the Bush v. Gore outcome in the oral argument. Yes, I remember telling my <laughs> editors that afternoon, uh, some news account said, oh, this is a temporary measure to, um, temporary order to keep things on hold until Tuesday. And I said, yes, that's one way to put it. But the truth is, this is the end of the, this is the main decision. You would not stop the vote counting for the full weekend until early next week and, and, and unless you had decided that the vote count was going to end. Uh, I think from Sunday and Monday on, it was only a question of the court's conservatives had to think up a reason for deciding what they had already decided. That is, they knew the decision that this uh, manual recount should come to an end. It's been a month. Uh, Governor Bush has had this. We should call this off and end it. Scalia later like, talked about, you know, we're, the, this is a, a national embarrassment or whatever, an embarrassment to the nation that we haven't resolved the presidency. They were very frustrated and, and uh, that the count had continued. So as I say, they had made the decision. They then heard some arguments on Monday and Tuesday, really to try to come up with a legal sounding reason for explaining why the count should end. But by Saturday afternoon, the decision had been made. Well, it's still interesting to listen to the, the case and some of the questions being asked, even if, as you say, the minds were already made up. So on December 11th, when the case happened, were you in the courtroom? Mm-hmm. Yes. And yes. and what do you remember from the atmosphere that day? Well, it um, uh, David Boyce was arguing for uh, Gore, and uh, he is a very good advocate, a very a terrific uh, uh, trial lawyer, lawyer before juries. But he he had made no headway with the justices. It uh, I, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but I really thought they had sort of in their minds had made up, they had made up their minds. Justice Kennedy and uh, Justice O'Connor were sort of fishing around for a, a reason, and Kennedy had sort of latched onto the idea in his mind was that it, it was some sort of equal protection violation because, in, in theory, what if you have a situation where Palm Beach County is saying, we're going to count every vote where there's a sort of a indented punch on the ballot as long as we can see where it was if there's a punch next to Bush's name. Uh, and then the next county has a very strict standard. It says, uh, we're not going to count it unless the hole has been pushed all the way through. And so Kennedy's view is we, it's, it would violate the equal protection clause of the Constitution to have these different counting standards in different localities. Now, nobody, I don't think, really made the argument that they had set this up to discriminate against George Bush, you know, that they were going to, uh, uh, they were going to be easy for Al Gore and hard for George Bush. It was that the, it's because there was no agreed upon uniform standard that it could differ by county by county. And Kennedy tried out that view uh, and said, um, you know, it, it was clear he was fishing around or trying to get clear in his own mind what was a good reason for saying this uh, recount could end. And that's that's what I remember them sort of going back and forth on this. And um, uh, Ted Olson had a much easier time of basically saying, again, that uh, Governor Bush had won. The Florida Supreme Court is sort of making fools of all of us by continuing this endless recount procedure, trying to find new votes in these punch cards. And it's time for this to end.
We're going to listen to uh, a couple clips uh, from, actually several clips from the oral arguments that day, but I wanted to uh, do a small media note as we do this. This particular case was the first time that the Chief Justice granted same-day release of an oral argument before the Supreme Court, a petition that had been made to the court by C-SPAN and then followed by others in the media. So as soon as the hearing was over, the audio was released so that the country and the world could hear what has happened had happened that day. Uh, it's a practice that the court has continued uh, throughout since that, that day in 2000. So let's listen, first of all, to David Boyce uh, and the argument that he made on Bush v. Gore, December 11, 2000. In Florida law since 1917, Darby against State, the, the Florida, Florida Supreme Court has held that where a voter's intent can be discerned, even if they don't do what they're told, that's supposed to be counted. And the thing I wanted to say about the Beckstrom case is that was a case that used optical ballots. Voters were told, fill it in with a number two pencil. Several thousand didn't. They used everything else, but not a number two pencil. And so the machine wouldn't read it. It was voter error. The Supreme Court in 1998, well before this election, said, you've got to count those votes. Why would the uh, Gore legal team make a change in the attorneys arguing the case? I don't know for sure, but I think um, just having listened to both arguments was that, um, first of all, that Larry Tribe had, it was given a tough time in the first round of arguments. Uh, he, you know, he, he, he was, you could tell he was not making a lot of headway with the court's conservatives. And Boyce had done the uh, argument in the Florida Supreme Court and had done very well and sort of won. So I assume the people, uh, Al Gore and the people around him said, well, um, Boyce had done so well arguing this case in the uh, Florida Supreme Court. Why not have him carry on and make the argument in the U.S. Supreme Court? Let's listen to Ted Olson making his argument before the court. Our point is, with respect to the punch card ballots, is that there are different standards for evaluating those ba those ballots from county to county, and there have it is a documented history in this case that there have been different standards between November 7th and the present with respect to how those punch card ballots are evaluated. Palm Springs is the best example. They started with a clear rule which had been articulated and explained to the voters, by the way, as of 1990. Then they got into the process of evaluating these, these ballots and changed the standard from, from moment to moment during the first day and again they evolved from the standard that the Chad had to be punched through to this so-called dimpled ballot standard, indentations on the ballot. There was a reason why that was done. There was a, because they weren't producing enough additional votes so that there's pressure on to change the standards. Were the arguments that he made this time around essentially the same that he made in the Palm Beach County case? Yes, and, and those are, I thought those are very good clips of the, the sort of competing um, uh, views that um, uh, Boyce was quite correct to say that the Florida law said the intent of the voter. And if you had a punch card and it was unclear what, what the hole had been punched through and somebody wrote in and with a crayon Bush, you could look at that ballot and say, well, it's clear this voter intended to vote for Governor Bush. And so we should rely on the intent standard is not something new. It's been the Florida law, and and it's quite reasonable to take each ballot and say this is a legal vote if we can discern what this voter wanted to do. And that was the sort of liberal pro-recount uh, uh, argument. Uh, Ted Olson was making the, uh, what turned out to be the uh, very good winning argument, which was Look, there are counties all across Florida, and, and they're, they don't have an agreed-upon standard. It's going to differ county to county. It may even differ, he said in this example, where they're actually trying to change the standard, in he said, suggested, in hopes of finding more votes. And there seems like something unfair about that, that you're going to sort of manipulate the standard to try to, in effect, manufacture more uh, votes. So I, I think both of them did a good job of sort of laying out the argument that they wanted the court to um, accept. To give our uh, viewers a sense of what it was like on the on the bench, let's listen to Justice Scalia questioning David Boyce. 
what the Florida Supreme Court said is that there shall be added to the certification these additional numbers. But that's true in any contest. Every single contest. It's not added to the certification. Yes, of course you, you, it is. You, you, you may do a review of the ballots and add more numbers, but as I read the Florida Supreme Court opinion, it said the Secretary of State will certify these additional. Yes, because the contest procedure is a procedure to contest the certification. What you're doing is you're saying this certification is wrong, change it. That's what every contest proceeding is. And what the Florida Supreme Court was saying after this trial is yes, you proved that this certification is missing. The, the certification as, as rendered by the Secretary of State did not include those additional ballots for, for, for your client. And, and the Supreme Court directed that the certification would be changed to include those. But, but, but Your Honor, that is what happens every time there is a successful contest. The contest is a contest of the certification. You have the certification. Make any sense to me? You, you have a certification which is made by the Secretary of State. That is what is contested. And to give uh, people a flavor of the other side, let's listen to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg questioning Ted Olson. Please. Mr. Olson, you, you have said the intent of the voter simply won't do. It's too vague. It's too subjective. But at least, at least those words, intent of the voter, come for the legislature. Wouldn't anything added to that be, wouldn't you be objecting much more fiercely than you are now if something were added to the words that the all-powerful legislature put in the well, statute? I think we have to distinguish between whether we're talking about a prospective uniform standard as opposed to something that Im Im changes the process in the middle of the um, the, the, the counting and evaluating of disputes. But, but if, we're talking would... about, if we're talking about the contest period, and the, the statute, as Justice Souter pointed out, speaks with amazing breadth. It says that the circuit judge, this is the text, shall fashion any order he or she deems necessary to prevent or correct any wrong and to provide any relief appropriate the circumstances. I couldn't imagine a greater conferral of authority by the legislature to the circuit judge. So what can we take away from both of those exchanges? Well, that exchange with Ruth Ginsburg, remind me, she was a very smart lawyer, always, always smart, very well prepared. And she's sort of Throwing back to Ted Olson, the argument he's making, which he's saying, you know, uh, you're arguing that the Florida courts were changing Florida law. And she said, Florida law says the intent of the voter is what counts and that Florida law is a very liberal provision for going back and contesting results. And all the Florida courts were doing was abiding by that. Why isn't that? Why aren't you asking us to change Florida law, which you said you don't want us to do. So I thought it was a very good sort of counter to the uh, argument that uh, that he was making. But Justice Scalia, you know, as I mentioned, there was these two parts of the Florida law. First was the certification, and then there was the contesting the result afterwards. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I guess there was some part of the Florida Supreme Court opinion that said that these extra ballots have been certified and add those to the total. And, and um, Justice Scalia had a, a lot of doubts, was skeptical of this whole procedure and just sort of adding new votes to the certification, which is, was, in his view, another example of what's going wrong in the Florida court. The court issued its opinion at 10 p.m. on the following day, December 12th. And we have the headline of your December 13th story on the outcome of that wow. case. Um, there were two rulings in the case with different sets of votes, and so maybe you can help us. We have about 15 minutes left in our conversation. Understand what the significance one. First was a 7-2 per curiam once again, uh, and you told us before that per curiam is the opinion of the court, but this was in fact split. Um, and then there was the final 5-4 decision. So what should we know about those two decisions? Well, uh, so they, I, I presume after the argument, met in a conference and cast their votes. And um, there were um, five votes to essentially end the recount 
on the grounds that it was um, unconstitutional, either that it violated equal protection, which was Kennedy's view, or the Rehnquist-Scalia view was that the Florida court had wrongly changed state law after the election, which violates federal law, because it, as I say, the Constitution says the legislature sets the way of choosing the electors. Um, on the liberal side, uh, both Justice Souter and Justice Breyer had made clear sort of during the argument, they were looking for some sort of um, middle position. Uh, and they were willing to say and willing to go along with Kennedy's view is, okay, if your problem is that we haven't, the Florida courts have not set a very precise, clear standard that says you've got to punch a card all the way through, have a, a hole for it to count as a, you know, say something more specific about what's a legal vote. Um, they were willing to go along with an opinion that would say, okay, we'll send this back to Florida with the requirement that they're going to set a more specific and then finish the count. But it turned out uh, Kennedy and O'Connor were not in favor of sending it back and finishing the count. They were interested in ending the account and, and, and shutting it down. And so, um, I always viewed that really as a five to four opinion. There was a five to four split on Saturday. They went back and uh, uh, considered it on Tuesday. Uh, there, they ended up with a procurium where it's sort of an unsigned opinion, it's an opinion for the court, and then four dissents: John Stevens, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Breyer, and Justice Souter. Each wrote dissents saying, and Souter said. We should never have taken this case. We should never have intervened. We should not have shut down the count. And now we, we've ended and, and, and wrongly ended the case. And Justice Breyer basically said the same thing. I, I was willing to go along with something that would allow recount to continue, but there's no justification for ending this and shutting it down. So, as I say, it was a, in my opinion, it was basically a five to four split on Saturday and a five to four split on Tuesday night, the the majority in, in not speaking for, I, everybody understands Justice Kennedy drafted most of that, and it, it made his equal protection argument that you can't have a recount statewide with all these different counting teams and no clear standard as to what counts as a, um, uh, a specific agreement on what counts as a valid vote, and therefore it's unconstitutional and time is up on on December 12th, therefore it's over. And Al Gore came to that conclusion as well. Let's listen to his statement on December 13th, 2000. Let there be no doubt. While I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. I accept the finality of this outcome, which will be ratified next Monday in the Electoral College. And tonight, for the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of our democracy, I offer my concession. This is America. Just as we fight hard when the stakes are high, we close ranks and come together when the contest is done. And while there will be time enough to debate our continuing differences, now is the time to recognize that that which unites us is greater than that which divides us. While we yet hold and do not yield our opposing beliefs, there is a higher duty than the one we owe to political party. This is America, and we put country before party. We will stand together behind our new president. David Savage, in my reading about this case, it's, I took away the understanding that the court meant this to be a singular decision of a circumstance at that time. But in fact, has it created precedent, and has Bush v. Gore been cited in ensuing election-related cases with any frequency? Well, uh, so I think you're correct on your first thought that the court, they've said this in the opinion, that this is basically we're deciding this issue. But Kennedy didn't want to get in. They didn't want to say that there's this equal protection standard that applies to all elections because everybody in every 
Hayes could make that argument. Jesse Jackson used to always say, hey, the, the voting count, the vote systems in the African-American precincts are not as good as in the majority. Why? They miss more votes. Therefore, that's unfair. It's un- the court didn't want to entertain those types of claims. So they basically said, we're deciding this case and this is not a precedent that should be cited widely. However, it is true in recent years, a lot of lawyers in election cases have increasingly cited Bush versus Gore under the uh, proposition, actually both propositions, that that sometimes they say, hey, the, the legislature in this state and the courts in this state are not following the uh, the rules set by the legislature. This has come up during this pandemic. Uh, you know, suppose the state law says ballots have to be, you can mail your ballot in, but it has to be in on election day. And some judges, some courts, some state courts have said, well, because of the mail problems and because of the rush of late mail ballots, this was particularly in the primaries in the spring, some of those ballots may arrive a few days late. But as long as they're postmarked on election day, they will count. People on the other side said, hey, wait a minute, you're changing the law set by the legislature. See Bush versus Gore, you can't do that. And there's also some times when when there's been an argument that something is different in one county than another, or if a particular county, suppose the biggest city in the state has a particular rule for how they do something, and some of the smaller counties do something else, some of the Republican lawyers have said, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. That's that's an unequal um, uh, rule for vote counting, and therefore it violates Bush versus Gore. So it is true that uh, Bush versus Gore is, has shown up in recent months in a lot of the argument and a lot of discussion. Brett Kavanaugh quoted it recently in one of the decisions, but it's not been, the Supreme Court has not cited it as the basis for a ruling. So it's it's not quite got to that level of where Bush versus Gore is going to be a precedent that actually the Supreme Court relies on for its own decisions. Well, let's pivot to 2020 because here we are two days after the 2020 election. And once again, we have two candidates in very close races. Neither has achieved as of the time we're taping the requisite 270 electoral votes. And on election night, the sitting president, Donald Trump, Uh, announced at two o'clock in the morning, really, it was the next morning after the election, that he would ask the Supreme Court to intervene. Let's listen to what he had to say. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. So our goal now is to ensure the integrity for the good of this nation. This is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. Okay? It's, it's a very sad, it's a very sad moment. To me, this is a very sad moment. And we will win this. And we, as far as I'm concerned, we already have won it. You've just filed a story about the comparisons between Bush v. Gore in 2000 and 2020. You quoted a uh, David Strauss, University of Chicago law professor, as saying, President Trump didn't help his cause by suggesting the Supreme Court was ready to ride to his rescue. The justices are all aware that Bush v. Gore ruling did damage to the court's legitimacy. Can you tell us what that means? Well, I think they all know that the the court has a certain um, uh, legitimacy and respect that uh, as the the arbiters of the Constitution, and they care very much about the preserving the reputation of the court. A lot of them will say that one of the things that they most think about throughout their career is that they don't want to do anything that would damage the court. They want to leave the court in, in as good a place as it was when they arrived. And they know that partisan election cases are some of the most treacherous territory because you're almost 
sure to irritate 50% of the people that think you were uh, partisan and, and wrong. And they all know that the Bush versus Gore opinion was very uh, controversial and much disputed. Justice Scalia would always say, oh, get over it. And he thought that he'd handled it correctly, but they all knew it was very controversial and they didn't, they didn't want to be in the position of seeming to, being seen as partisan actors. And, and, and so they're not anxious to go into that again. And uh, President Trump is very willing to invoke the Supreme Court and say, I'm going to the Supreme Court. Um, it's a little unclear to me, even when he said that, what he meant by that. He said something about stop the voting. Voting was already over, and, and um, they were counting ballots in the state. Uh, the Supreme Court's not going to jump in and say stop counting the mail ballots, and Trump's, Trump's lawyers didn't even ask the court for something like that. So it was a peculiar invocation of, of saying, I'm going to the Supreme Court. Um, who knows what will happen uh, weeks from now, but uh, I, I don't think the Supreme Court is anxious and ready to jump in and at, at the first opportunity and decide some aspect of this election. So your instincts uh, in the middle of December back in 2000, even though people were saying they wouldn't, was that the court ultimately would get involved. Your professional instincts at this point are that the court is very hesitant to get involved. Is that correct? Yes, it is. I think it's very unlikely they will get involved. It's, it's possible some issue will arise that would uh, cause, the, you know, that the state courts would decide and the Supreme Court would get a petition from Trump's lawyers and they'd say, wait a minute, this is this is clearly not state law and it's clearly unfair. Um, but I don't see that case at the moment. Uh, I've tried to watch the litigation and there is a, a pending case from it's come up from Pennsylvania, but it only involves the ballots that arrived after November 3rd. And in, in Pennsylvania, they've been counting I don't know, some extraordinary number, a million plus ballots, but those were already in. And so the issue that the Trump team is raising really involves a small number of ballots that are not even part of the current count. So, I mean, if Pennsylvania would come down to, let's say, uh, a Biden ended up prevailing by 5,000 votes and it included those late ballots, then yes, I can see the Trump campaign would have a would be able to go back to the Supreme Court and said, "See, we we believed all along these these late arriving ballots should not have been counted because the state legislature didn't want them to be counted, and therefore you should intervene." It's possible, but I think that's a very much of a long shot because I think the 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 result is going to be settled, and those ballots are not going to affect the outcome, and there's so therefore no reason. For the Supreme Court to get involved. So we have about a minute left. With the benefit of 20 years hindsight, how should we look back at the case of Bush v. Gore in 2000? Well, it, it was it was sort of a once of a generation case where, uh, as I say, from the beginning, there were five members of the court, five uh, Republicans, and who sort of took the the view of the Bush team, which was, uh, gee, all the all the votes have been counted in Florida, and Governor Bush has won. I said in this story that I just followed, I thought that's the position President Trump is, is in sort of now, the position that Al Gore would. This is once you have lost, once the votes have been cast and counted, and you lost, it's very hard to go to court and persuade a court that to essentially step in, jump in, change the rules, and overturn that result. And it turns out that the Supreme Court wasn't willing to allow that to continue in 2000. And um, it'd be interesting to see if if um, it happens again. But I think it's the kind of precedent that it was it was an important, uh, obviously decisive case at that time. I don't think the court is anxious to quickly repeat that.
uh, experience. David Savage, few people in our country have more experience with observing the Supreme Court than you from your perch at the Los Angeles Times doing this job since 1986. Thank you so much for sharing your memories and your analysis of Bush v. Gore 20 years ago. Appreciate your time. It's great to go through it, Susan. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.